in Nehemiah chapter 9. We've got quite a bit to read, uh, so if you turn there and read along with me, this is a big, big text, uh, but it's a, um, it's a central text to the book of Nehemiah, so it's very, very, very important. So let's read that together, if you would, with me. There's 38 verses, starting in verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day. For another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord, their God. Now on the Levites' platform stood Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Benai, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Benai, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord who chose Abram and brought him from Ur out of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite and of the Hittite and the Amorite, of the Perizzite and the Jebusite and the Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. And you fulfilled your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea and on dry ground, and their uh, pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters." And with a pillar of cloud, you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to, um, to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, uh, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and laws through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to slavery, to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them 
allotted to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sahan, the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You made their sons numerous as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to enter possess. So the so their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them, into the, um, gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land to do with them as they desired. They captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possessions of houses full of every good thing. Hoon cisterns, vineyards, um, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. So they became disobedient and rebelled against you. And cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried out to you in the time of their distress, you heard from heaven. And according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore, you abandoned them to the hand of your enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore with them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions which, with, with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom with your great goodness which you gave them with the broad and rich land which you set before them did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of this fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please, so we are in great distress. Verse 38, now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Brother Corey, would you come and preach this word to us this evening? Good evening, church. That's a lot, isn't it? Well, I am, I'm so happy to be able to share this and just, just thankful for this opportunity. Um, I'm excited to get back to Nehemiah. I really enjoyed it. I really haven't been through Nehemiah before this, so it's been, it's been really good. To be honest, I kind of struggle with this. As you can see, there's a ton of information. There's a lot of facts, a lot of storyline, a lot of history. And I kinda, almost got bogged down in that a little bit, missing this account. This is a national revival of Israel. It's such a great miracle of God. And I just prayed that God would, that would burden my heart for this text, that he would make it personal, and, and he has. And I pray that he would do the same thing for you. So 
as we've seen, chapter 9 almost seems like the climax of Nehemiah. We've seen how, how Israel struggled hard to build the wall, how they'd faced all that adversity, and they'd come through that. But realizing more and more as they were building that wall that God wasn't just about restoring that wall. He wanted to restore their hearts to himself. He was bringing the nation back to him. God's work had led them up to this point, And now they're faced with the question, what are we going to do with God and with our sin? So I know it's been a while since we've been in Nehemiah. So let's just do a quick recap and get the context of chapter 9. So in chapter 8, we saw Israel during the Feast of the Booze. So this is a time when they would remember God's provision and protection through the wilderness. They would make these little booze or these, these tabernacles and they would live in them for a week. And um, in Deuteronomy chapter eight, Moses warns the people not to forget God's provision, to continue following these ordinances and these festivals even once they had success in the, in the promised land. He, he knew that it would be a struggle for them and he was right. They had gotten away from all these ordinances between their sin and their, and their captivity that they faced, a lot of it had died out. But now, with this restoration movement coming in, they were starting to begin again. So during this festival, Ezra brought out the word of God and read it to all the people. God began to do a great work among them. As Brock preached back in November, the Holy Spirit worked in their lives in three different ways. First was the way of provoking their minds to the scriptures. Then after he provoked their minds, he provoked their hearts to an emotional response. And then with provoking their minds and their hearts, it ultimately changed their will. So this leads us into chapter 9. There was, there was that conviction and that sorrow from Ezra reading the word of God. But they delayed the response because they wanted to finish the festival. It was time to rejoice for the, in the Lord for his deliverance. So we're coming in right after this festival with that delayed response of this conviction. And we're going to see the response of how God was working in their lives through his word. So the main idea tonight is that God uses his word to drive his people to repentance, prayer, and resolve to bring about spiritual renewal. Say that again. God uses his word to drive his people to repentance, prayer, and resolve to bring about spiritual renewal. So spiritual renewal, then and now, comes the same way. It's from the Holy Spirit working through God's word. We'll see how Israel was blessed with his word in their lives. But remember, the same is for us. We have this opportunity tonight to look into the same word of God and to have him work in our lives. I pray it would be the same for us. Every time we can open God's word, it's an act of his grace and his mercy. And it's a miracle that God even wants to talk to us. So Israel, they were cold and dead in their religious routines. They were accustomed to their traditions, just like it's easy for us to be. But now something's different. God's revealing himself. His spirit's working. He's moving. No longer is it just this scroll over here in the corner that nobody reads. It was alive and active in their lives. He's restoring their hearts back to them. And I pray it'd be the same for us. So let's look at how Israel responds to God's word here in the first three verses. I'll read it real quick. It says, now on the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers while they stood in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. So the first thing they did as a response to the word of God is they repented. We, 
We explain repentance as, as a U-turn. It's a total 180. It's a change of direction. It's not just, just feeling bad for our sins. It's not just this, this understanding that we gain and this knowledge of sin in our lives. But it's something that's a turning away from that sin. And it's a turning towards God too. So listed here in those three verses, there's five acts of repentance that they do that kind of help us grasp the entirety of this concept. And the first thing they did was fast. This is, this is a lost art to a lot of people. You don't hear a lot of people teach this or do it anymore. But it's so much more than just skipping our dinner and just not eating. The very heart of fasting is admitting that we need God more than we need our basic life needs. How many of us seek God more passionately or just as passionately as we seek providing for those basic life needs that we have every day? When we go without food, our bodies are crying out for it. When I'm hungry, I can't think of anything else but to where to get something to eat. Fasting, it prioritizes our soul's need of God more than our body's need of food. We take the time that we would be eating and we use that to seek God's face, to seek his direction. And we're admitting to him that we need God, we need his direction more than we need our life to continue. Israel's heart was in this place. God had revealed their need of him and they're now turning their hearts back to him. They knew that he was their greatest need more than anything physical. The second thing in verse one we see is mourning. Israel mourned over their sin. They got down in the dirt. They fell on their face before God, knowing how badly they had wronged God. When's the last time that our sin has caused us to grieve like this and mourn? Not because we're facing the consequences, not because we got caught or how we look, but because we've broken that fellowship with God. It's so easy for us to look at someone who we feel is lower and kind of push ourselves up. We can always find an excuse. We can rationalize just about anything in our lives. But when we look at God's holiness and our sinfulness and compare the two, we can't help but see how far our hearts are from God. And we can't help but to mourn to see that. Think about that broken fellowship with the Holy Creator. What a gift it is to have that fellowship with Him. But yet we treat it as a second or even third tier priority in our lives so many times. So we see that they fasted and mourned. But thirdly, in verse 2, they separated from the foreigners or from the heathen. They cut all ties with their relationships to the outsiders of their faith. This even included marriages. These people had introduced false gods and they were the source of the distraction what was taking their eyes off of the one true God. They were pulling Israel away from where they needed to be and the God they needed to be following. This sounds really harsh, but they desired God above everything else. They were past this point of just being sorry. They knew that they had to follow God and God's word affected their hearts because it changed their actions. And that's how we can see that. So in verse two, we see fourthly that they confess their sins. They name their sins. They came into agreement with God and his word about what sin actually is. They corporately confess their personal sins and their sins as a nation. Confession is key in repentance. It's not just, just naming a list of our sins, not just going down this checklist, but it, this is a true confession is from seeing our sin, how God sees it, agreeing with God, taking taking him at his word, seeing what the Bible calls sin and calling that sin in our own lives. It says that they, they confessed, but then after that, that they worshiped. This naturally comes at the end of repentance, doesn't it? 
when we see God's holiness, when we see our sinfulness, and we see how God wants to restore that, and that work is active in our lives, we can't help but worship God. And if we can't be excited about that, if we can't rejoice in that and praise God for that, you probably haven't experienced it in your life. The more I study the gospel, the more I teach the gospel, the more I'm in his word, the more I'm just amazed by his love for us. We like Israel, we need to repent and be restored to this fellowship and this worship of God. So we've seen, we've seen their fasting, their mourning, their separation and confessions, but lastly and, and importantly, we see that they look to the word of God. This makes all the difference and gets us that, that 180 of repentance. This is, it takes us from seeing our sin and it gives us something to go towards, get something to follow after. It gives us a roadmap on how we can see God and how we can know him. Church, we have to be in this book if we even stand a chance to follow after God. Not so we have this checklist of do's and don'ts and just this list of rules to follow, but we can see God for who he says he is so we can know the God that wants to restore us back to him. So alongside these acts of repentance that we just went through comes this beautiful corporate prayer. This, is, this takes up most of the chapter and it's what's gonna be our main focus tonight. It illustrates these acts of repentance, what they'd already been doing and then gives it in a prayer to God. So there's five parts and it's broken down through Israel's history along with God's covenants to them through those times. Excuse me. So they start at the very beginning. They go back to creation. That seems like a good place to start, doesn't it? They set their foundational view of God as the creator of the universe, the sovereign creator. This is verses five and six. A proper view of God is absolutely foundational to our faith. It affects how we live out each day. It affects how we look at God, how we pursue him, and how we look at ourselves. When we see God as the holy and righteous creator of all things, we're going to have a different approach to him. There's going to, be, there's going to be humility. There's going to be reverence there. When we view God as, as the designer and creator, maker of all things, what does that naturally attribute? It gives him authority, right? It makes him the source of our life. It makes him the source of our very breath. And if he gives us that life, if he's the one that causes us to wake up every morning, then obviously we're subject to him. This is exactly the conclusion that they had come to. The people saw God as the creator. He had ownership of all living things. He gives them their lives. And it says in verse six that the heavenly host bowed down to him. What comes to your mind when you, when you hear that heavenly host? To me, I think if we saw that, we would just be struck down and paralyzed in fear. Whenever you see, just think of in the scriptures, whenever you see people that see an angel, what happens? They're afraid, right? The very first thing the angels always say is don't be afraid. And that's just, that's just one of them. This is, this is the host. This is these powerful beings that God has created that would strike us down in fear. And this is what bows down to our God. Viewing God as the sovereign creator allowed them to have that greater respect for his holiness and ultimately an even greater thankfulness for his mercy to them. So with that basis of that, that view of God, they go to the next big event or time frame in their history. And this is, this is Abraham. This is God's covenant to Israel and make them a great nation. So in verse seven here, there's just a couple words I want to note. And the first one is chose. 
we see that God chose Abraham. Out of every person alive at that time, God chose to work in Abraham. With this, I just can't help but think how undeserving we really are. There's nothing in our lives that we can do to deserve God's love, to deserve his work in our lives. There wasn't anything special about Abram. He didn't deserve God to work in him. But God works in us because he chooses to, and he does it according to his grace. And we're going to see this even more as we go on through Israel's history. Another phrase here in verse 7 is brought him out. This is that idea of sanctification. It parallels really well with what Israel did with the separation from the heathen. God also gives Abraham, Abram a new identity and a new purpose. The same God still works in the same ways today. Look at what he did. He calls them out as a people separate to him. He gives them a new identity, a new heart, and a new purpose. He would go on to do great things to this man and his wife. But isn't it awesome how the Old Testament is just packed full of the gospel? God's word, it works together perfectly. So if you're, do you remember the covenant that God made with Abraham? Um, it's in Genesis ta- chapter 12 if you want to go look at it later and write that down. But God promises Abram, Abraham three things. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. All this was to be done so that they would be a blessing to the other nations. God promised to always watch over them and always provide for them. And through, through Abraham, that all the nations would be blessed. We now know that, that that blessing was Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins. Not just for the sins of Israel, but for the sins of all who would believe. We as Gentiles are blessed through Abraham, through Jesus' sacrifice. The details of this covenant are in um, Genesis 15, and it symbolizes that the covenant was between Abraham and God, but that it was solely up to God to see it through. In those days, when they would make a contract, they would, they would split an animal and they would, they would walk through it together. In this covenant, God leaves Abraham on the side and he walks through it by himself, meaning that the keeping of this covenant was only up to God. It had nothing to do with Abraham. Paul reiterates this later in um, Hebrews 6, 13 and 14. It says, for when God made the promise on Abraham, promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. God couldn't promise on anything more reputable than himself. And this was the very foundation of the nation of Israel, this covenant right here. So now them looking back years later, they see God's faithfulness to keep his promise. So the best way to earn someone's trust is to have a proven track record with them, right? It's to keep yourself faithful. God's record was perfect then. It was perfect to where they're looking back and he's still perfect today. They simply state that you have been faithful to your promise and you are righteous. From Israel's beginning, they could look back and see how God had always been faithful to them. But isn't he, he's the same with us. Think about how God has shown himself faithful to you and to the people around you. So they, they transition from God's covenant keeping with Abraham here, and now they're going into the captivity and the exodus of Egypt. This is in verses 9 through 21. So, Israel and Egypt, they were, they were in dire affliction. They were living in slavery. They were working hard labor every day. And Egypt had total control over them. So much to the point that at the time of Moses, they're killing all the male babies just so they can keep the dominance over them, keep them under their control. 
But it says that God heard their cries. He did many signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all the people, but they were hard-hearted and they refused to let Israel go. So with all God's signs and wonders, the plagues that he did, it says here in verse 10 that Egypt acted arrogantly. Pharaoh was prideful. He was rebellious towards God, refusing to listen. It ended when God wiped them out at the Red Sea. Just another example of his faithfulness to Israel. But now the prayer's focus shifts back to Israel. We see God's faithfulness through exiting Egypt and deliverance at the Red Sea. But look through the verses 10 through 15 here. They speak of his guidance day and night through the wilderness. It mentions God's presence coming down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. How God used Moses to give them the rest of the law through the Pentateuch. God was faithful to provide food and water for them in the middle of the wilderness. And he protected and provided for them the whole time as he led them to their land of promise. That's such a great list, right? When we see all of God's faithfulness, you'd think that after they'd went through all that, that they'd be on board. They'd be 100% sold out to God. We're ready to follow you wherever you lead. But that's, that's not the case at all. Look what it describes here in verse 16. It says, they acted arrogantly. This is the same word that they just used to describe Pharaoh and his rejecting of God's commands. So God's chosen people are in the same level of rebellion against God as his enemies. Israel was stubborn. They wanted to do things their own way. They were disregarding God's commandments. They refused to listen and they forgot everything that God had done for them. God had poured out his faithfulness to them. He kept all his promises and they wanted nothing to do with God. They were trying to find a way to get back into that slavery. They even made, made an idol to worship instead of their Jehovah God. Now, we, we tend to judge Israel really harshly, right? We like to push them down and say, oh, they're crazy. We would never do that. But I can't help see the similarities between them and where we are today. How quickly do we forget God? It's so common in our culture that we just want to leave church at church. We want to disregard his word all throughout our week. We want to... We want to do things our own way. We don't want to listen to his principles. We take everything that God's blessed us with. And somehow we take ownership of that and thinking it's all of ourselves. And we forget all about God. We, after being freed from our sin, we turn around and go right back into that slavery. We just look for a way to get back in it. We're exactly the same as Israel here. We like to picture ourselves as the good guys and the heroes. But we struggle exactly the same as they do. But look at the end of verse 17 here. It says, but you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. God still kept his promise. And he does so because he swore on himself. He chose to do it out of his grace. God desired the follow through of Abraham and his descendants, but that wasn't a condition on God to act and keep his promise. I thank God that his faithfulness to us isn't rationed out by our faithfulness to him. It's all because of his grace. And that's why we can fully trust him because it's not something based on ourselves. It's based on him and his promise. God didn't forsake them. Even when they ignored God, his guidance was still there. When they were disobedient, when they complained, the man was still there every morning. They had plenty of water to drink. God did this for 40 years and he never held back on his promise. 
Such a great track record to go off. And Israel is looking back at this and seeing the faithfulness of God. And this gave them hope that he would continue to do this in the future. God was faithful in creation in Abraham through Moses. And now we're going to look at the time of conquest. So this is the time where they, where they captured the, the promised land. Their kings reigned over the region. Verses 25 through 20, 22 through 25 list all these victories that God gave them. And all of that was because he had promised it. They had everything they could want. Read verse 25. It says, they captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possessions of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and reveled in your great goodness. God delivered on his promises. Even through all their unfaithfulness, God still brought them to this land that he promised. Israel was living what we would call the American dream. But what happened? They, they stayed in the same sinful cycle. They chose the blessings of God over the God that had blessed them. And it's so easy, it's so easy for us to do. I, I read a quote while I was doing my studies that said, for every 10 people that would pass the persecution test, only one would pass the prosperity. It's hard for us to, to feel like we need to reach out to God when we're comfortable in our own surroundings and in our own selves. Naturally, we're gonna, we're gonna reach out for help or we're gonna be more inclined maybe to seek after God at times of, of struggle. But we have to realize that we are always in need of God. Verse 26 says, but they became disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might, so that they might return to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Again, we tend to judge them really quickly, deflecting any conviction that we should take to ourselves and we just, we just shift it back to them. But we need to examine ourselves and see the similarities. So they totally threw out God's laws. They, they killed the prophets that were proclaiming God's law. They wanted nothing to do with God anymore. They're happy living in what they thought was their own success. They didn't have any need for God anymore. There was no room for him in their lives. Throughout Israel's history, we see this cycle of, of God's blessings, Israel's disobedience, God's punishment, and then Israel's repentance. God wasn't, wasn't shocked that they did this. This is why he made the promise based on himself. He knew that man is sinful and that they would fail. God punished them as he always did, but that was to bring about restoration. It was to bring him back to him. He doesn't punish them so he feels better. It's to bring his people back. They could see that even through God's punishment, he was being faithful to them, and that it was an act of grace. So after all this recounting of their history, they arrive to where they are presently. They're responding to God's faithfulness. They're confessing, and then they ultimately they resolve to follow God wholeheartedly. So this time the punishment had led Israel to be taken away captive. Assyria and Babylon had come in. They'd sacked their cities, and they'd carried them back to slavery in their own land. And they're in the middle of one of these cycles that we just talked about. They're coming out of this punishment phase and now kind of entering into this repenting before God. So let's read their, their prayer of confession here, 33 through 37. It says, however, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn to their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today. 
And as the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and bounty, behold, we're slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set before us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Such a powerful prayer of confession. Just the, the raw emotion that you can see in this. What stands out to me is they're not really asking for deliverance from their physical situation. They're confident that God would be faithful just as he has always been. But what they were seeking was restoration back to God. They wanted and they needed God back in their life more than they needed relief from their physical difficulties. They praise God for his faithfulness and justice even through their disobedience. There's, they draw this stark contrast between the sinfulness of their fathers and the holiness of God. And don't you, don't you find that true? When you, when you look at God's holiness and then you look at yourself, you just see that gap, right? We feel less deserving of his gifts. We almost, we almost kind of feel depressed, but I don't think we should really feel depressed. We should rejoice in this. We should rejoice that a holy God wants to work, that he wants to forgive our sins, that he wants to do what we could never do for ourselves. He wants to restore us back to him. They confess and they repent of sins that had happened generations before, something they had no control over, but they realized that this was, this was a pattern for their people and they didn't want to follow, fall back into it. What an example that we can follow. Imagine what, what corporate repentance would look like in our, in our nation and in our church. We tend to think of America as almost like God's gift to the world, right? Like the gospel comes through us first and then that's how God blesses the world. We think of, of God's blessings as, um, as possessions and opportunity that we have because that's what our culture values, right? We enjoy abundance and the goodness of God, but we fail to live thankfully to him. We fall into this category of Israel where they were at more than we even want to admit. We have failures as a church in this country, and we can go on, but we should confess these things before God and ask him to renew our hearts in these ways. Israel was no longer wanting to go down this, this broken path of their fathers. They needed to be rescued from their past. The cycle had to be broken. But the blessings of success weren't what they were after. They had seen Israel and how they'd had their success before. And they saw how all that stuff, but without God, just led to emptiness. They wanted God in their lives. They knew that their sufferings were directly because of their disobedience. This is why they felt like slaves in their own land. And with all these people trying to lord over them, all this oppression they're facing around them, how could they not? They're in this great distress because of their sin, but they just wanted to be restored to God. They saw how God had forgave their nation before and they were expecting him to do it yet again. God did what only he could do. He brought about true repentance and a true heart change to a whole nation. What they do after this prayer here in um, verse 38 is they sign a document. They sign a covenant back to God saying, we're going to follow you wholeheartedly. God restored the hearts of himself as a direct result of his word being preached to them. That sounds like such a great ending to the story, doesn't it? As if everything just concludes right there and that's, it's happily ever after from then on. But what do we know? We know that's not true. We know they messed up time and time again. They ignored God. They rejected his word. 
They rejected his prophets. Just look at, the, look at the spiritual state that we find Israel in in the gospels when Jesus comes. They had false doctrine was running rampant. They had the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And there was a lot of people that were just indifferent and didn't care. They were so off course and they were so out of tune with God that when he gave them their Messiah, they killed him. But out of this horrible execution of Christ, God has brought us life. He's brought us into a new covenant. He's fulfilled the covenant of Abraham. He's fulfilled the law. And Jesus brings us a new perfect covenant. Hebrews 9, 11, and 14 gives us insight to this. I'll read it for you. It says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Christ was a perfect sacrifice. He can take away our sins. He can restore us to himself. It says right here that he wants to cleanse us from these dead works. He wants to cleanse us from serving ourselves, from chasing after what this world has to offer. And he wants to put us into his service. This is, this is that total 180 turn of repentance. And that's away from where we're gonna naturally go. But through the power of Christ, it can happen to us. The church is just like the Israelites here in Nehemiah's time. And God wants to renew our hearts to him. And God did it the same way that he does now. And it's all through repentance. So just in closing, let's recap these acts of repentance. First, there was fasting, which is an outward sign of us acknowledging that we need God more than we need anything else in our lives. There was mourning. There was, it's grieving for our sin, grasping the weight, the importance of God's holiness, and seeing how we fail him. Separate from foreigners. Repentance is going to cause you to cut ties. It might be a person, place, it might be a thing. It's going to look different in each situation. But we can't expect to move away from our sin and walk towards God if we stay stationary. We need to confess sin. We need to agree with God about our sin. What God calls sin in the Bible is what we call sin in our lives. Don't explain it away. Don't rationalize it. Accept it. Confess it to God and go the other way. And lastly, we need to read the word of God. This is how we complete repentance under God's personal direction. God's word has everything that we need to follow after him. But, but do we treat it as such? Are we looking towards it every day? Do we look at it as the key to living our lives? And these, these five acts of repentance led them to a place of worship. I mean, where else could it lead? Restoration brings worship. My question for us all to think about is what area of your life needs renewal? Where is God's word speaking to you? And how do we arrive at this place of spiritual renewal? Remember the main, the main idea was that God uses his word to drive his people to repentance, prayer, and resolve to bring about spiritual renewal. This revival flowed out from God's word being preached. So go to church, hear God's word being preached, but also open it for yourselves. Let it preach to you. Dig into the scriptures. I promise you, it won't take long and you can see where we fall short.
but it's also not going to take long for you to see the God that's calling you to himself. When God reveals sin, repent, pray, and follow God's direction. We tend to see repentance as, as these big steps, like Israel did with their cycles. We see these big mistakes followed by these revivals. What's so great about God's new covenant with us is that no longer are we stuck with this list of rules that's absolutely impossible to keep. We've been blessed with a perfect high priest, a mediator that walked as we walked, that's in heaven that's praying for us and then he's given us his Holy Spirit, he's given us his word. We're not alone in this. God is actively involved in guiding us towards himself. The key is to not see this as big steps but to have a regular, even a daily time of personal renewal. We're blessed to have church services and Bible studies where we hear the word of God preached, but respond to it. Take it in, let it penetrate your heart. See God in his word every day and let it work on you. We tend to look at these big events as, as our defining moments, right? Who we, but I really think who we are is defined in these small smoke, in the, in the daily steps that we take. They form our mentality and the base of who we are. I remember being 13 or 14 years old at a youth conference and the preacher said that the decisions that you make in your life as a teenager are the most important in your life. I was like, that is not even true. And then, but somehow that, that always stuck with me. And then even in college, I remember hearing that and like, there's no way that the things that you do when you're a teenager are the most important things in your life. And it wasn't until like, maybe like 25, 26, I remember that and like, you know, that really is right. No, those decisions, that you make as a 13 or 14 year old kid aren't, aren't the big heavy weighted decisions, but what they do is it, it makes those patterns, it makes the habits in your life and it turns you into the person that grows up to make those decisions in your life. So my point is with this, it's not gonna be these, these big events that we see in these heavy weighted decisions, it's gonna be a daily walk with God. And it's just like that, that we're, I love that, that term, a walk with God, because it's so true. Sometimes it can be mundane, it can be repetitive, it can be just a grind, but it's this, how it is. It's daily small steps that we need to take towards God. But how do we keep this renewal going? So the pattern here is a great example, and it started with the word of God as a basis for everything. It was preached and then it was internalized. They saw God's holiness in light of their sinfulness. God's not calling us to remain in that sinfulness, but be restored to him just like Israel was here in Nehemiah 9. I want to close with one last verse, and let's look at um, Luke 9, 23 and 24. And this is Jesus talking. He said, and saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one that will save it. We're to die daily, die to our fleshly desires, our me first attitude, our dreams, our goals, our possessions, we're to die to that every day. And think of the example that Jesus gave to us. He gave up so much more than we could ever give up to him. And only in that can we find life in Christ. Then we can repent and we can be renewed daily to God. It's not gonna be easy, but he gives us the power and the means to do it. And he's proven that he's gonna be with us every step of the way. Thank you. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for 
your restoring power that you have and that you offer to us freely, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that we would that we would see you as creator, God, Lord, that we would see your word as an ultimate authority in our lives and that we would value it, Lord, that we would treasure it. I just pray, Lord, that you would just help us to passionately follow after you, Lord, that we would die daily to ourselves and that we would just ultimately just value more than anything else in our lives. Just work on us and be with us as we go this week. In Jesus' name, amen.